Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 29. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com, Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. Also on the line, the managing editor of Raw Charge, The Enemy. We have Alan Wells, or Loser Points, as you may know him on Twitter. Alan, how are you doing? Doing great, guys. So, um, we're here. We, ha- we brought Alan on. Because, A, he's obviously a very smart guy, uh, great Twitter account, one of the best hockey Twitter accounts, one of the few hockey Twitter accounts that don't suck. <laughs> and he knows everything about the Bulls, so we're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about the most pressing question that relates to the Leafs and the Bulls. Why did you guys steal our uniforms? <laughs> Man, you really, uh, really, really sandbag me on that one. Um we didn't. We didn't steal your uniforms. Come on, it's 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 blue and white. It's one of the most one of the most common common combinations. Um, but I would like to see some uh, some fun stuff with our third. Uh, hopefully, when that gets announced here in the next couple months, um, we ran an article last week asking for the the old storm jerseys to come back with the with the rain and the and all that cool stuff on them. So yeah, I wanna I wanna see them embrace Tampa a little bit a little bit more and get a little a little further away from the kind of cookie cutter stuff we have right now. The Storm jerseys were, like, very 90s, weren't they? Yeah, and I think we're at the time period where that, that stuff, like, the, you know, people kind of look back on that fondly now, whereas it was, yeah, like, pretty retro. terrible at the time. Um, but, yeah, it, it definitely brings back some some fun memories. So, yeah, I, I mean, we saw the, the Ducks kind of go that route, and I think it's fun when, when teams at the right time kind of lean on that history a little bit. I'm really pulling for 90s nostalgia just kind of in a general way. Like, for the last maybe decade, it's been 80s nostalgia. And 80s music, I just want to be clear, was bad. Um, Top to bottom. Like, I had to hear Don't Stop Believing in stuff every time I went out. And I'm just very angry about it. So I'm pulling for those 90s nostalgia and thus for these Storm jerseys to make a turnaround. Just wanted to share that with the team. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if... uh... I mean, '90s was pretty ugly music-wise too, a lot of the time. So I don't know. I don't know how much better that gets, but we should get some cool hockey jerseys out of it, yeah, if nothing else. All right. So, um, as I said, we're bringing Alan on to talk a little bit about uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Atlantic Division as a whole, and kind of where the Leafs and Lightning see themselves in it. So, I mean, let's just get into that straight away. Um, Alan, from your perspective, how is kind of the sentiment in the Tampa Bay Lightning fan base right now? What are the kind of the expectations going into this season? Um, how, how do they feel, basically? I mean, the the sort of harsh reality is this is kind of kind of cup or bust time. I don't really, you know, kind of think that way, but ever just because of the inherent randomness in, in hockey and thinking that way is a a way to ruin your life and your fandom but yeah. um but i think that's sort of the general sentiment i mean it's it's three eastern conference finals in the last four years they've got all the talent that they need to do it they've got the top end players the the cap stuff starts to get really ugly next summer and the summer after i mean it's, it's already been ugly but they've been able to navigate it so far but it's only going to get worse and so it sort of feels like it feels like this is the year where they still have kucherov on that on that, you know, ridiculous contract that he had to sign because he, he was an RFA without arbitration rights. And um, they, they kind of have as much firepower as they could possibly have in a season. It feels like it's this year. And then after this year, they kind of have to retool. Um, so we'll, we'll see. I think there's a lot of pressure on, on the team um, from, from the fan base. And I, I think that's somewhat justified, but also, man, that's a, that's a rough way to, to kind of go into a season when, when you can't really feel like you've achieved anything until, you know, May. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's uh, I, I mean the most fun that we've kind of had as a, a Leafs fan base was one the latter part of the tank year, uh, which I got to tell you was terrific because I had absolutely no investment in either the team success or like ninety percent of the players. It was just waiting for William Nylander to come back out. And then the one year after we drafted Matthews, everything was house money. Uh, now I think Leafs fans are kind of, there's an expectation now. Like if we don't make at least the second round, I think there's going to be a lot of disappointment no matter how well we do in the regular season. And with the Bolts, as you say, like that's got to be heightened because, I mean, from where I'm sitting, you guys are the best team in the league. Uh, I don't know how. Are you, like, are you... Convinced of that? I, I didn't realize you probably don't want to, like, tempt fate by saying it, but, like, is there a team that you think is better than Tampa on paper right now? Um, I mean, I think there's teams in the conversation. I think Winnipeg is in the conversation. I think Nashville's in the conversation. Um, I think those are the the three teams kind of on paper. I mean, the, the Pens, you kind of always have to think about. Same with the Caps. You kind of, until they show otherwise, you kind of always have to think that. But if you ask me to pick the the cream of the league this year, I, w- I would say it's Tampa, Nashville, and, and, and Winnipeg. And I don't, you know, when you start talking about that, that level of team to say one of them is sort of definitively better than the other, it's, it's, it's really hard. And the, the, the outcomes are going to be determined largely by things that the teams can't control. Um, injuries, puck luck, goaltending, shooting, that all that stuff that, that ultimately drives, drives results in the NHL that you really can't, control from a from a front office or even a coaching perspective so i think they're in i think that's why the expectation is there in the fan base and i think it's justified they're they're certainly in that class but it's just you really you you never know and i think for the leafs you i think i think that was a good point about sort of when hockey is the most fun is is as a fan is when when you're sort of on the just just on the other side of of the worst parts and and there's no expectations and you know and i think you guys still have probably a year or two of cushion before you get to that really kind of crunch time where you feel like you you're in the prime of, of this, of this core of players. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's still a fun time. I think for, for you guys, hopefully as a, as a fan base before the the pressure really ratchets up in, in a few years to, to get something done while you have those guys. I think among Leaf fans, uh, I think there's sort of this sentiment that, that kind of agrees with what you're saying, and that people almost want to elongate it in some way by like reducing the pressure on the season. We see that a lot of the times with the idea of like, oh, let's trade Jake Gardner, who's in the last year of his contract, right? So we we can set ourselves up better for the future. And it's like kind of this perpetual uphill ride where you're like, you can always point to something coming down the pipeline saying, oh, that's when it'll be better. You never have to really um, face the realities of, hey, this year is all or nothing or like this this year is big we have we need to put actual expectations on the season that's not to say all the arguments for trading someone like jake gardner fall into that but i I actually do think that psychology plays into it uh to a a significant degree because it's like you said it is scary it is scary where you're the fan of a team that you think is good that you know is good but still so much can go wrong right we saw that with tampa two years ago where they were just as good just as good a team uh projected to be to go very far in the preseason and then just every single possible injury that could hit them, hit them. And even the best teams can't stand up to that. And I mean, so many things can go wrong, right? You can just key injuries, you could get uh, a goaltender who just has a bad year, and it happens. It, it, it's scary to have a year where your success is only defined by what you do in April, May, and June. Yeah, yeah, and I think for, particularly from, from the Lightning perspective, when they went to the Cup in, in 
2015, the, I mean, the overwhelming sentiment among the fan base was like, even though they lost and they, they had a real chance in that, in that series and looking back may have been the better team, but, um, there was, there was a really strong feeling of like, Hey, that's house money. This team wasn't supposed to be there that soon. They've got years ahead with this core and, you know, we're, we're four years on from that and they haven't been back. So, um, you kind of, you, you never, in hockey, it's sort of about, you, you build the best possible team that you can. You, you give yourself an opportunity and then you wait for sort of everything to align to sort of give you that chance to, to really make a run at a cup. And, and, and when it comes, you, you have to take it because you, you have no idea when, when things are going to sort of bounce the right way to, to, to get you back there. And that's sort of what Lightning fans have been dealing with for the last, you know, three or four years. And, and with the core that, that, that you guys have in Toronto, it seems, you know, likely that, that you'll get at least one or two shots at it, but you just sort of never know when it's going to come. And, and, and when it does, you, you got to take it because there's no guarantee it's coming back again. No, I remember when I was young, uh, between uh, about 1999 and 2004 or so, the Leafs were consistently a top five-ish team. You know, they made the UCF a couple times. And I just took it for granted that you made the playoffs every year. Uh, I was so young and so innocent. And then <laughs> I yeah. wasted, like, most of my youth watching the worst teams you've ever seen. So, from Tampa's perspective, obviously... You know, there are nightmare scenarios. You've experienced them, as we were saying, with uh, that year where just everyone got injured. But aside from, you know, team getting hit by a bus, what are the things that people are really afraid are going to undermine it? Like, do they trust Vasilevsky and Nat? Do they worry that Cooper is going to make the wrong decisions? Because I think every fan base has, like, a limited amount of trust for their coach. Like, Like, what's the concern here in terms of what preventable error seems like it's the most threatening to happen this season? I mean, the, the, the crazy thing, and you try not to get your hopes too high, but the roster is, is almost foolproof. Um, it's mm-hmm. really hard. There's not, there's not a lot of room for, for bad decision-making. I think some of the risks that, that, that people are seeing are, I think there's a certain you know, feeling in the fan base that Andre Vasilevsky played too many games last year and they would prefer to see him as part of a deep playoff run, not play, you know, 70, 80 games <laughs> again this season. And if if you're planning on being a Stanley Cup contender, maybe don't have him start 60 games in the regular season. Um, even mm-hmm. if that means that you're not going to win the division, um, you know, I mean, that, and that stuff, that stuff matters. Having, having home ice in the playoffs matters. So you don't want to throw games away. Um, but I, yeah, I think I think that's one thing that I'll be interested to see is that their goaltending coach has said publicly that he thinks the optimal range for a starter is 55 to 65 games. So, I mean, I don't see Vasilevsky's workload really changing, but I think that's something to keep an eye on. He started really strong last year and and had a tough time down the stretch, um, but was was fine in the in the playoffs. So I don't think you can like you know definitively say he was tired. Um, and I think the the other thing that's out there is is the usage of of Mikhail Sergachev and and whether they sort of I think the fan base and me also uh, would would really like to see him play a real top four role this year just just put him on the right side on the second pair and and see if he can do it I know he's young um, but having all of his talent playing you know 12 to 15 minutes at five on five on the third pair or whatever um, and picking up some extra shifts here and there it just 
seems like seems like he's he's ready for more than that and you may have to eat some mistakes especially in the regular season but if you can put him in those as many high pressure situations as you can in the regular season this year then then maybe he's ready to handle that workload in the playoffs um so but but outside of that there's not really a lot of stuff with the forward lines that that can really go wrong those are those are pretty set and i think people are pretty comfortable with those it's it's really about where how much Vasilevsky plays and where Sergachev slots in? Does he does he take that spot on the second pair, or does he you know do they give that to Dan Girardi and then you know and then we've got a Coburn Sergachev third pairing where we you know you feel like maybe you're leaving some you, you know you're leaving something on the table there by not maximizing his usage. That makes a lot of sense, um, especially with regard to Sergachev, who it. <laughs> I have to admit, when you guys acquired him, I had a real feeling of the rich get richer that made me kind of sad. I was like, they don't need more defensemen. We don't have any defensemen. Why can't you give us one? But uh, the other thing that's been happening all summer has been Eric Carlson rumors, which have kind of slowed down a bit. I think Pierre Dorian may have realized that this would be the defining move of his tenure, but... Is Sergachev something that you would consider for Eric Carlson, you know, uh, or is it like you would really rather have nothing to do with that and ride with the horses you've got? So that's that's a really hard question. And there's, you know, the the acceptable answer to that question is if you can get Eric Carlson, you do what it takes. You get Eric Carlson. You have the best team in the league. You have Victor Hedman and Eric Carlson on the same team. You just do it, and you you try to win a cup in the next two to three years, and that is and that and that's it. That's mm-hmm. what you do. Um, if you wanna, if we wanna, you know, think about the game analytically and try to optimize our decision making here, I think there's a real legitimate question of who do you want on your team. For, do you want the next eight years of Eric Carlson from from 29 to 36, or do you want Mikhail Sergachev's 20 to 27 years? Mm. And I don't think that's an unfair question to ask. And and I don't I don't know that I that I have a confident answer for that. I but I think it's closer than than sort of the the party line answer, which is like you do you do whatever you can to get Carlson. And and I and I get that, but I think there's also a flip side of that where you say like. Sergeyev put up ridiculous results in limited usage last year as a 19-year-old in the NHL. It doesn't happen that often. You know, how good do you think that player is and and you know, how much are you gaining in the short term versus, you know, inevitably losing, you know, in the long term just just to aging and stuff. So I'm not as like totally sold on the on the idea of of Carlson plus that that contract with the Lightning's cap situation. There, there's complicating factors there. So I mm-hmm. I certainly understand how good of a player he is, and and seeing him with Hedman would be about the most fun that I could imagine having as a hockey fan. So that that part of it is is really appealing. But if I was in so as as a fan, I I love it, and I and I would love to see it happen. But if if I was thinking in the way that I would think, if I was in a front office, there would be pretty extensive kind of analysis that I would need to dive into in terms of you know contract stuff, aging, understanding as much as I could about Carlson's injury. You know, his last year wasn't wasn't as great as as some of the years previously. And so there's there's some stuff that I would really need to dig into to to feel confident about which which was the right direction to go there. Yeah, I think I mean the, the standard answer that like you're guaranteed to hear or to see this tweet on hockey Twitter it's like, "Oh, insert prospect here." Could, um, or Eric Carlson's great, but Inter Prospect here could be anything. He could even be Eric Carlson. The idea is that it's mocking 
right. taking the mystery box over over the sure thing. But as you said, there's a lot that goes into it beyond that, right? Because, and especially for the Lightning, where they have so many uh, long-term contracts to, to stars, but long-term contracts for a lot of money. Um, Sergeyev represents a potentially very valuable player, a player who can be a top four, maybe top two defenseman on a, on a strong team, who will also likely be underpaid for the next six years. And that's super valuable for a team that it has a lot of players who are adequately paid, right? Because you, you need the underpaid players to balance that out. Yeah, for sure. It's it's a it's a huge asset, and that's that's a problem that the Lightning are running into right now. Is that they have they have so many players on their on their roster that are making market value, um, and it's it's good. And players should make what they're worth, but you, you can't build an entire team out of players making what they're worth, or else you're going to be an average team. I mean, that's how that's how the market works. So, you know, you have to find ways to have players on their entry level deals and and in their RFA years where they're where they're cost controlled, um, and and that you know the lightning have you know a, a player at a at a prime position who could potentially play on the on the right side of defense which is one of the most expensive positions to acquire in the NHL and so they just yeah i i i hear the hey it's Eric Carlson you do whatever you never know what the prospect is anything could happen all that stuff i hear that but i think it's a more complicated question than than people make it out to be sometimes i think that that's definitely fair and i also get the impression this is a bit speculative, that Steve Eiserman agrees with you. I have to think that if there were a centerpiece deal on the table around Mikhail Sergachev, and then a bunch of secondary pieces who, like, are not nearly as important, that deal would be done. I just can't imagine that Dorian thinks he's going to do too much better than that. But on the other hand, I'm guessing at the psychology of the Sens organization, which is maybe a mistake because they're run by an insane person. So maybe I should dial that back. But I do get the impression that Eiserman knows he has something quite good in Sergeyev. Yeah, and I think the Sens have dug themselves a huge hole organizationally, and I think other GMs right now are unwilling to sort of help them out of it, and and that's what it should be. And I, I think that they know that every day that passes, there's more pressure on, on Ottawa and on Dorian to do something. And, you know, it, if he lets this thing get to the to the deadline... Um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a nightmare for them. And, and we keep talking about Carlson, but they got two other huge expiring, uh, unrestricted free agents coming up next summer in, in Matt Duchesne and, and Mark Stone. And like their, their situation is, is out of hand. And, um, so they, Carlson is, is the main problem, but they've got, they've got other problems. And I think, I think GMs around the league are just, just going to just play hardball with them and know the situation they're in and, and sort of force them into, what I think is ultimately going to be a disappointing return for any of those three players that, that they decide to move. And I, I think it's going to be, you know, another rough season for Sens fans who I, who I actually feel bad for at, at this point, because I don't think any fan base really deserves to be sort of treated the way they are, but it's going to be, it's going to be an ugly next, next 12 months for that organization, I think. Yeah. I mean, the, the crazy thing about um, the returns that they're talking about, I, I saw a piece in the media that, where Dorian said he wanted like four major pieces, like a, a player who can help now, a first-round pick, a high-end prospect, and then like a secondary piece or so, something to that effect. And it's like you're trading a rental. Like that rental prices just generally don't go that high, and it's like you have literally no leverage. He he's going all in on a two-seven off suit, and <laughs> like and he played it face up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and that's that's the other thing is is man, they for a team that like desperately needs to extract some value from the other GMs, GMs they cannot keep a secret. Like nothing nothing that gets negotiated around those trades stays in-house with that organization for some reason. It's like we know everything in in real time and yeah, I just I don't I don't understand what's going on there and and they've they've put themselves in a in a really ugly spot and I, I guess Maybe if you want to have optimism as a Sens fan, you look at you look at Joe Sackick last year, sort of waiting everyone out on the Duchesne thing. Um, Duchesne had a little bit more term left, obviously, so he had some more leverage there. But maybe you think that, you know, a, a few weeks into the season or, 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 you know, a couple months into the season or whatever, there's there's a team that, that gets a little bit more desperate. Um, of course, the, the problem there is the team that got desperate was the Senators, and so they can't <laughs> get desperate and trade with themselves. Um, but may- maybe they hope someone else, you know, finds themselves in a in a spot where they they'll overpay. But yeah, it's 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 ugly and and getting uglier. Yeah, I think the genius of what Sakic did there is that he found a team that was willing to bet on themselves, but the team that was willing to bet on themselves was actually really garbage, right? Like that, that's and that's the mo- by far the most valuable part of that Duchesne trade, right? Was was the future first round pick from a team that is that thought they were good, but they weren't, and it was somewhat obvious to pretty much anyone who had had a passing understanding of hockey analytics that Ottawa was much worse than they appeared to be from uh at the time so it's like if if they're gonna recoup if they're gonna somehow make a Hail Mary play it's going to have to be something like that but you look at the teams who are willing who are willing to bet on themselves right now and outside of maybe Vancouver who are just I don't know what the hell is going on in Vancouver but like it's hard to spot (laughs) a team that has such a huge gulf between what they think they are and what they are right now, the way Ottawa clearly did last season. Yeah, and I mean, the whole impression I've gotten in the summer, you know, Alan's talking about how they've been leakier than an old ship in terms of, like, every detail of these negotiations has been getting out. And one, I'm not convinced that there's any organizational competence to stop it. But two, I've wondered a couple of times if they're trying to goose the market very crudely by saying, gee, you know, these teams are in on it, but we're waiting for someone to beat their offer and nothing has happened. Like, I, I think that the result has been to make them look very desperate. And everyone, as you say, now realizes that they have uh, a minimal amount of leverage uh, that's getting smaller. And sooner or later, Dorian is going to have to swallow hard and take a bad deal. Um so I don't, yeah, I don't really see a way out. I, I like how we got like a Bolts expert on here and within 20 minutes we got him into let's make fun of the sense. <laughs> Although what we do best. Yeah, I mean, not that that's what we were doing, but like, geez, that's a catastrophe. But um, maybe this is a good point to kind of branch out a bit. When you look at the Atlantic in general, Alan, like what do you see? What jumps out at you as like interesting? Who's overachieving? Or like, who do you see on the come up? Like, what do you kind of make note of when you look at the Atlantic I see I see three good teams a team that might be good but is constantly sabotaged by its GM and then a bunch of garbage (laughs) um so I think I think the Lightning the Bruins and the and the Leafs are the are the class of the division and and I don't know that there's a huge amount necessarily separating them I think if you look at the preseason predictions um a lot of models really like the Bruins and the Lightning, with maybe the Leafs a, a little bit further back. Um, 
So, I mean, I think that's that's sort of the the group that is we feel pretty strongly is going to make the playoffs. I think I think Florida's a really interesting team, um, and I would really like for them to be good for a lot of reasons. Um, I'm, I'm biased, obviously. I want I want hockey in in, in NHL hockey in Florida to do well. Um, I want that organization to sort of be able to get back on its feet from an attendance perspective, and and you know sort of be able to revive that that fan base and um, I also want them to be good from a, from a rivalry perspective. I think it's fun when both the Lightning and the and the Panthers are good, and the, the arenas are within driving distance of each other. And and so I think there's, you know, there there's potential for those to be really fun fun games. And if and, you know, especially if it was like a first round playoff series, I think that I think that'd be awesome um, for the state and, and for the game really. So, you know, I, I I sort of hope that they can they can sort of rediscover some of what they were a couple years ago, but it's, it's, you know, I'm not sure that we'll see that. We, we may be looking at, you know, three Atlantic teams and, and five Metro teams again. Um, and then at the, at the bottom of the, of the division, I mean, the, the Sens, you know, sort of, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be rough. Um, the, the wings, that's another team that I don't, I don't know if they know how bad they are. Um, they had an opportunity to kind of kind of reset and, and move on from Ken Holland, but they they don't seem to be going that direction. So I don't I don't know sort of what their what their thought process is. And then uh, Montreal, um, you know, we can we can talk about each team in a little more depth, but just on, on a high level, just uh, just really enjoy watching them be bad. I just, <laughs> it's really it's it's the the show right there is is great, and um, unless Carey Price. Uh, you know, goes goes bonkers this year. They're just going to be just a, a, a team um, of of really like just just a lot of bad forwards. Just so many bad forwards on that team. Um, it's going to be it's really fun to watch them be as bad as they are. Yeah. Um, okay. So before we actually let's before we talk about the bad teams, let's actually go into a bit more depth on on the good teams. So we talked a little bit about Tampa uh, before. Um, with respect to the Leafs, what what do you see as a as a rival fan looking at at the Leafs? Where do you think they are strong and weak, and how do you expect them to perform? So I think they're a super interesting team. I think the Tavares thing is is like it's really I'm really interested to see what he looks like on the Leafs because on paper they they the Leafs are a team that are great offensively and and not so great defensively um i think that's that's kind of pretty clear in terms of their where where their shot metrics go Mm -hmm. and they added a player who like fits exactly that profile so they sort of like leaned into their style whereas you see a lot of times teams sort of try to mitigate whatever their perceived weaknesses are so Mm -hmm. i'm i'm really interested to see what what that team looks like with another player who who has sort of been all offense no defense with the obvious caveat that he was playing on a team that i think has the potential to totally distort someone's results and so um it could be that that the numbers that that we're looking at for Tavares are not a fair representation of his ability, at least defensively, um, just because he was playing on a team that, that was such a disaster. So I think there's a possibility that, that he's maybe a little more than he showed in that area, but that that's the thing I'm really looking forward to seeing is like, if you stick Tavares onto this already like scary offensive team, but that can be a little leaky at times um, and relies pretty heavily on, on, on Frederick Anderson, like what is that, 
what does that look like? And I, I think it, I think it's going to be fun. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of, that, that's the most interesting part of, of the addition for me. I mean, he's obviously a great player um, and him going to Toronto is, is great. And it's, it's good for the game in terms of having stars and markets like that and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I really want to see how his game fits in with a team that seems to sort of very much fit what his profile is as a player. Yeah. The, um, Tavares' defense has been interesting because even among uh, analytics-y types who, who look at the stats, I've heard different things from different people, right? Because uh, Tavares had this one year, I think it was the season before this, where all the um, goals of replacement metrics rated him as very, very good defensively. And it was kind of a, of a, a reversal of his entire career up to that point where he was like not great defensively. And then this year, it seemed like it was more of the same where he was not great defensively. And it, as you said, it is very difficult to assess because, I mean, first off, we have trouble assessing defense just in general, um, the defensive aspect of forwards, and separating that out from systems. But then the Islanders were so bad defensively that it's it makes, as you said, it makes it even more complicated to to take a look uh, and really understand uh, where where Tavares ranks on that scale. I think fans and media are going to um, not really respect the nuance that goes on in that argument because, I mean, this is the same fan base that unironically tried to push Nazem Kadri for the Selkie at one point. So, I mean, we're not, we, we, we haven't seen good defensive play from forwards in a while. So when someone is like average at it, we're like, oh, wow, how could anyone be better? I'd like <laughs> to just throw this out here. The, the Kadri for Selkie thing was like, okay, that's a real overrating. Somehow, Jay McClement, Jay McClement, wound up sixth in Selkie voting in 2013. And, like, I have to assume that the Toronto media was leading the forefront of that, like, insane charge. Because, like... I remember it was because he, he played a crap ton of penalty minutes, like, PK minutes, and... Good at face-offs. Took, yeah, took, it, took face-offs. Um, but he was, he was a fourth-line player on a team that was, like, not that great. No, on a team that, like, <laughs> I think it was partly that, like, there was a period where our only real center was, like, Mikhail Grabowski and then sort of Tyler Bozak on the worst defensive line imaginable. So we got kind of weird about, like, what it meant to be good at center. But, like, the guy had 17 points that year in the shortened season, but still, like, come on, man. Anyway, that's just the I mean... long way of saying that we can do insane things to the voting for awards. <laughs> That, that's sort of like, a, that's a traditional hockey media sort of like dream scenario, right, though? That you've got, you've got a team in a huge market that doesn't necessarily have the star power at that position. And so sort of they can look at this guy who's playing a ton of PK minutes and craft this narrative around, a, you know, playing a, a, a more traditional game and all that stuff. And that, I mean, that's basically like, that's, that's sort of a wet dream for 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 a certain yeah. segment of, of the media. <laughs> that's yeah, that's probably how it went down. Basically, like everything just lined up for just a memorably bad award voting season. But uh, yeah, so I don't. I mean, the the sort of general chatter around the Leafs in Toronto that I've seen, and you know, one were like this weird fever dream bubble, and two, I kind of live in a weird segment of that bubble by living on like leaf nerd hockey twitter so i have no idea if i have perspective on this or not but there's been kind of 
a variation between saying things like, uh, like either they're like going to walk to a cup, which is there are always a few people who say that even when like the last year we had 75 points or something, or you get people saying like the defense is non-competitive and the Leafs are going nowhere. Like they'll, they'll make the playoffs and lose in the first round, which they might because they're going to run into someone pretty good if they finish in the two, three slot. But I don't, maybe this is me kidding myself and you can tell me straight up if it is. I'm not convinced that our defensemen emphasis are as awful as they seems. I don't think that they're great. I think that they're offensive focused at best, but I'm kind of convinced that our forwards learning to play defensively in an effective way would go a longer way than people realize. Like, I think that Riley and Gardner are not terrible guys to have as the basis for your top two pairs. Again, it's nobody's dream scenario. And I feel weird saying this to a Tampa fan who is like, got more number one defenseman than you can shake a stick at. But like, I do wonder if, if that's a delusion that I have as a Leaf fan, or if, you know, there's something decent there to build on. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's a delusion. I think, um, I think sort of going back to what I was saying earlier, just the thing that interests me most about the Leafs is just, just the roster construction. They just have such a, they have good players, but they, they, they are all sort of these offensive oriented players. And, and so that presents sort of a coaching challenge, but then you've got this, this great coach, one of the best coaches in the league. And so I'm just, yeah, I mean, I I think it, it really comes down to like, can you just lean into it and can you just try to outscore people? And, and they've, they've done that at times. Um, but I wonder if a coach like Babcock, you know, is okay with that in, in the play and, you know, in the playoffs and in, in crucial situations. So, I mean, I, I, I like, I like the team. It's just a matter of like, will the coach let the team be sort of the best version of what they can be, even if that means, you know, sort of a risky style that kind of drives you crazy um, as a coach and, and, and as a fan at times, and that, that sets you up for some some really exciting wins, but some really crushing and kind of kind of disappointing sorts of losses where you have to sort of swallow it and just say like, listen, we we take that because we know that in the long run, you know, we're gonna we're gonna be better off if we just let these guys do what they do offensively. There's a really interesting dichotomy with uh, with Babcock because. Like every coach in recorded history, he talks endlessly about defense and the need to play it right and not cheat and do all the little things well. And the stuff that's associated with doing things defensively, things things like having better structure and whatnot, the things that are associated with being a solid, impenetrable group. And to be sure, many of his lineup decisions reflected that, you know, playing Leo Komarov far more than Leo Komarov ever had to be played, playing Roman Polak and, uh, because of his presumed defensive solidity in front of the net. Uh, but Babcock also did some very offense-oriented things where he did kind of lean into the style of the Leafs uh, and kind of what suits them. I mean, I think Fulman and I have been banging this drum for a while, but I think people have, haven't given Babcock enough credit for exactly how much he trusted rookies and young players with key roles. And... I guess to some extent it's obvious. If if you have Austin Matthews and you're not thinking, oh, well, he's only 20 when he's going out there and scoring four goals, right? Uh, it, it's kind of brain dead to um, to not play him and use him as, as well as you possibly can. But 
the Leafs style, even even tactically, seem to be set up in in with the idea of okay, let's let them use their speed, let's let them get as many chances close to the net as possible, and use our superior finishing ability to out to to win, basically, not outshoot teams, but outchance them from the best areas of the ice and use our forwards kind of talent and ability to break structure more than you know coaching them to stay defensive there's there's a lot of talk about oh how Babcock has made the Leafs more defensive during the season and I never saw that as I never saw that argued convincingly I never saw that argued in a way where it's like oh well systemically here's what he's doing now to make the Leafs more uh, defensively solid and taking away things that they do on offense it was kind of results based after that crazy hot start and some things that Babcock has said so it's I don't know I find him a very interesting coach to analyze because he made he didn't have I don't think he had a great year last year but by the end of the season when the playoffs were around I think the Leafs were mostly playing their best lineup and they were mostly deploying them in a way that uh increased their chances of winning or maximized their chances of winning I think that's really all you can kind of ask for at the end of the day yeah, I, I think that's true, and I and I also think sometimes, um, I think sometimes for for teams that are that are good and they and they know they're good, um, and I think the Leafs are in that that category now. Um, I don't have a problem with coaches doing things during the regular season tom- sometimes to demonstrate on ice during the game that a certain aspect of their system or the way that they coach is important and to emphasize that. And, and I think sometimes we sort of simplify and, and we say that, you know, if, you know, we, we get tired of coaches talking about defense and we get tired of, of hearing those sort of same tropes. But I, I do think there is some value if, if a coach feels like that is a weakness and in occasionally using a lineup that says like, I want, the players at the top of this roster to emulate some of the stuff that these guys are doing. And that's why they're in the lineup on a Tuesday in December, you know, in a game that, that ultimately, you know, won't, won't matter as much in in the long run. And so I tend to give coaches a little bit more um, leeway maybe than, than a lot of folks in our, in our section of Twitter, especially, especially do. And, And I think that, that if that's something that Babcock is is trying to do with a bunch of guys who are in their early 20s and say, like, listen, this other part of the game is important and these guys do that well. And maybe they don't do anything else well, but they they do that. And so they, they he wants them to see that and to, to sort of get a feel for it. I, I don't think that's as, as big of an issue as, as it's made out to be sometimes. And, and I don't watch the team as, as closely as you guys do, obviously. But I, I know that I see that happening uh, you know, around the around the league a little bit, and I don't have as much of an issue with it as maybe as maybe some folks seem to. If you know that stuff is important, and you and you have people who at least try to do it the way that you want it done, um, I don't have a problem with with making sure that everybody sees that so that they so that they have a visual of it and they understand it and they can see it on tape. I don't know. Yeah. That might be that might be like a a hot take or like a, a controversial kind of opinion for someone from from my perspective. But yeah. I, that's, no, that's kind of where I land on it. <laughs> honestly, I've, <laughs> and I feel like I'm allying myself with like the most currently reviled man on hockey Twitter, who is apparently now Tyler Dello or whatever. But like, I do think it's like, the, when you're evaluating a coach, you should at least kind of think, is there a reason for him to do this that isn't just he's a moron? And you know, 
we were coached by Randy Carlisle, and I am convinced with my bones that that man is a moron. But uh, it is worth kind of saying, okay, is there a logic to this? And I think that there has been a logic, that, like what you're describing, in some of these moves that maybe weren't the most satisfying from a fan perspective. So, yeah, I think absolutely there's truth in that. We should talk about some other teams. What do you guys think of Boston? I guess regarding Boston, you know, there are some people who project them as still very strong. I mean, they still have a terrifying top line. Uh, they're still a dominant uh, shot attempts team. Are they legitimately, you know, like, I, I mean, I guess certainly we all agree they're a good team. Are they one of the best teams? Are they the best team, which I've seen in a couple quarters? Like, what do you think, Alan? Um, I, I mean, I think, like you said, that top line is is ridiculous, and then it, it becomes all about it becomes all about their depth and whether that depth that they showed last season is is for real. Um, they had some forwards who nobody had heard of until last year who who had really good numbers, um, and so it'll be about if that middle six can sort of replicate what they did last season. And and I think you know Charlie McAvoy, I think, is a star on the blue line for them. Um, and so that, that sort of makes a big difference for them compared to where they were a, a couple years ago. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, it's, it's tough to, to fully buy in because we've only seen it for one year. So to say that they're for sure in that, in that absolute upper class of the league, I, I think that's tough, but, but I expect them to be in the race for the Atlantic division all year. I mean, they, they, they were, you can't overstate how dominant they were from a shot metric perspective and expected goal perspective last year. I mean, they were, mm -hmm. they were the best team in the league um, from that, from that perspective. So it's just my, my question marks with them are around whether or not that, that middle six is really what it, what it was last year. And if it is, if it is, then yeah, they're going to be one of the best teams again. Like there's, there's, there's no denying that it's just it's just a matter of if they if they can replicate it um, and if they can continue to get at least decent goaltending from Tukarask because it's been kind of off and on with him for for a couple of years now so that's that's the kind of pitfall for them I think is like if the you know if the bottom really falls out there which it has for extended stretches over the past couple of years um, you know that, that that's where they could get into trouble. Yeah, guys like Jake DeBrusque and Danton Heinen are, are going to be really, really key for them. You know, kind of that middle six that you mentioned to make sure that they're not just a one-line team. Yeah, and I mean, that, that one line is so good that their middle six doesn't doesn't have to be, like, great. It just it just has to be above average. Like, if, if their middle six is, is a little bit above break-even, like, they're going to be a dominant team again because that, that top line is just is just ridiculous. I don't want Boston to be good. I just want to <laughs> put that on the table. I just would like it if they would decline. And so I think that maybe I convinced myself that they're not that great. Um, or at least that their shot metrics overrate them a little bit. Like, they're obviously a good team. Um, I mean, I, th yeah. I think one place where the Leafs do edge Boston is, I think, and this is, again, maybe a somewhat controversial opinion in in the age of of analytics but i think the leafs legitimately do have elite finishing talent i think if there is a team that can reasonably expect to be near the top of the league in conversion percentage it's the Leafs, partly because of where they shoot from and partially because they're very good at letting their good shooters do all the shooting 
Yeah. Um, uh, and I think Boston has obviously some some great shooters, but the team-wide kind of compulsion to shoot only when you can see the whites of the goalie's eyes is not there as much as it is with the Leafs. So I, I think finishing is the one area where the Leafs kind of outstrip them. But yeah, like it's it's scary facing a team that is is that is that dominant from a shot perspective. It's like kind of depressing, especially when they can just like randomly on a whim just say, you know what, Austin Matthews, you're not playing this game because Patrice Bergeron's going to be on your hip. Right? It, yeah. It's, it's, it's so obnoxious. Like, ugh. Yeah, and I think when that when that first line goes on one of its runs, it's just, it's so demoralizing. It's like you, you like, you know how good they are, but then you watch it and it's like, oh, yeah, we, we can't get the puck back. Like, yeah. <laughs> this, this, this isn't going to stop until there's a line change. And then, um, and then you like they take a penalty, and you see Bergeron and Marchand on the penalty kill, and you're like, God, don't these guys have a rest? Like, what the hell? Yeah, and Bergeron half the time it's like, you know, he has like two broken ribs and like three fingers that are functioning or something. Like, he's always alleged to be partially injured. I remember this happened in the Boston series and a yeah. of the playoffs. And then you're like, okay, we should take advantage. We've got him at like fifty percent, and then he comes out and he's Patrice Bergeron again, and it's like. Yeah. Like, can he be killed without? Yes, you know... his, his legs like he's literally dragging one leg around the ice, but he still has like a ninety-four percent Corsi. <laughs> yeah, you have to like cut off the head and seal it with flame or something. Like, I don't think that you can destroy Patrice Bergeron with conventional weapons. So. Yeah, and then, another super annoying thing is that like Brad Marchand's turn to being an elite player is like one hundred percent real. It, yeah, it, it was he's he, like he's really good. But yeah, he's also it, a complete asshole. Yeah, it was annoying when he was, like, a good player who uh, was also, you know, grade-A pest. But now he's, like, one of the ten best forwards in the league and is also a grade-A pest. And it even, like, it, the, the, the dichotomy is, like, even more distinct than that for me. Like, he's one of the best forwards in the league and, like, a terrible person on the ice. Like, we're yeah. not talking about, like, like bad penalties here. Like, like filthy cheap shots like dangerous stuff like he's yeah he's terrible and it's like he that's sucks. such a weird that's such a weird split for him to be that good and that dangerous the only person who comes close in terms of that like that ability and also that level of like being a shithead is Evgeny Malkin but like even with Malkin's bad and maybe this I'm biased because I'm not we're not in the division with Malkin so we don't see him as much as other players like Malkin's bad he gets hot-headed he takes runs at guys but, like, Marshawn legitimately could have ended, like, five careers at this point. Yeah, and he does weird shit. Like, yeah. Yeah, the, you know, licking, the licking thing, thing? What was that about, you know? It's, like, it's not good to do that. That's not okay. And, like, only Brad Marshawn would even think to attempt that. You know, it's, like, ordinary crime is no longer satisfying for me. I have to lick dudes in the face. Like, what is and, happening? And then you get, like, the, the Boston fans. And I'm not singling out Boston fans because if Brad Marshawn was on any team, their fans would defend him. Um, mm. But you get Boston heads who are like, oh, you know, licking him was wicked smart. <laughs> that's, my, that's my Boston accent. I love your impeccable yeah. Southie accent. That was like, perfect. You should be in The Departed. I feel like and I was watching like, Goodwill Hunting. Oh, yeah. And it's like, they, they get indignant. And they're like, oh, well, licking's, you know, causes less harm than, like, checking someone. It's like, well, yeah, except we're in a civilized society. We don't just friggin' lick people. Like, it's, like, it's, yeah. like, it's vaguely um, reminiscent of some politics that happened in the U.S. where you have to, like, renegotiate what it means to be like a decent human being 
Yeah, it just like I, I I know that there's like a lot of nonsense about the code in hockey, and it means you know surprisingly little when push comes to shove. But like, there's an ordinary standard of bad behavior. There's an ordinary standard of egregiously bad behavior where you have cheap shots or you have you know guys doing a cup check or something like that. Tom and Wilson's then there's career, basically. Yeah, basically, and then you have the universe of Brad Marchand where. It's anarchy, and it's like some sort of political science experiment where it's like you wonder what a world based on Brad Marchand's ethics would look like. Like, he's just so terrible. Ugh. I'm angry now. I feel like I just, uh, I've gotten sidetracked into how much I hate Brad Marchand as opposed to... <laughs> I hate him so much. It's honestly uh. 90% of the reason why I just want Boston to go away. Just like they're, they're just so annoying. Pretty much yeah. because of him and because Zdeno Chara is... 9 million years old and it's only good because NHL referees somehow agreed to not call interference on him. Yeah. He's like some sort of obstruction octopus where like anyone that comes into his tentacles is just going to be like wrestled down and like held for, you know, 10 seconds after the puck goes in the other direction. Like, yeah. I mean, like we're being homers here because, you know, I'm sure Boston fans don't think he he obstructs people at all, but like it's 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 so annoying. You see this guy who like covers ninety five percent of the ice with his big ass wingspan, just <laughs> randomly hold people. He he's one of those guys, and we have those in sports sometimes. Where I think the his just his physicality and like his size is like a weird thing for refs to deal with because mm-hmm. if a if a person who was like six one one ninety five was doing that, like they wouldn't call it. But like, when he does it, it's it's like it has such an impact on the game. I don't. It's it's almost like he needs his own, you know, because yeah. he needs his own rules. Because you don't. It's just a guy that size just impacts, you know, things differently on the ice. Yeah, it's 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 he's had he's had a wild career and he's like seventy years old and is like still good, um, which is doesn't make any sense. I thought he would have been bad by like three years ago, and every year I'm like, this is. Just can't keep going and then there he is again still good he's gonna be playing like four years from now and we're still gonna be saying the same thing yeah i i felt that way about boston generally i was like look char is gonna age out bergeron is going to age out marchand is gonna age out and now it's like well they have pasternak and mcavoy coming and the old guys aren't getting worse it's like i feel like that kid in the dentist youtube video but it's like is this gonna be forever like i don't want to <laughs> have to deal with boston anymore man like <laughs> Now, having said that, if you ask me, would I rather deal with Boston or deal with the Habs being good? I want to be clear that I will always take Boston in that regard, and I hope the Habs continue to be bad forever. So I guess I can't have everything in life. But, uh, yeah. I mean, there's like a decent chance that our first round matchup is Boston again. Like it's been the last couple times. And it's like, well, I, I don't know that I love our chances in that matchup, but we'll see. I just like killed the mood with that statement too, eh? Everyone's like, no one wants to play Boston in the first round. It's a yeah, it's a nightmare. No, it's a, it's bad, and it's bad that that happens to to decent people. It's, it's bad for it's bad for my psyche. They're one of the few teams where like I feel like I'm gonna like say something on Twitter that I'm gonna end up regretting. Like they they, <laughs> they bring out they bring out that side of my fandom, and it's 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 the Bruins, but it's also it's also the the baseball team in Tampa, the Rays play in the same division as the Red Sox. And um, so there's like a, there's a little bit of a Tampa Boston thing 
um, that goes even beyond beyond hockey. And uh, it's yeah, it's it's just for whatever reason that that rivalry is one of the ones where I, I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna get in trouble if I'm if I'm not careful. I have to I have to pick my words. Yeah, I, I sympathize with that. To be honest, I think that uh, the Toronto Sens rivalry of my youth inculcated such a like pure schadenfreude at any Sens failure that like I don't like I really should be feeling bad for them at this point as you described like that like they're just in the abyss of a hockey team it's like a you know uh, the cruelty of man towards man or something thing going on now and I'm just like I still kind of am enjoying this a lot like <laughs> just oh yeah I'm, I'm enjoying it like, plenty <laughs> yeah I, I mean you know having said that like the scenario where it gets any worse for Ottawa now is they get relocated. Like, even then, that might actually be good for them in a way because it might give them some sort of semblance of a fresh start. But, like, that's just a bad, bad time. That, that's Which the thing. Is, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that, that's that's the thing for me. Just, like, when it when it gets to the point where you start thinking, like, the, the city could lose the team, like, I don't know, it's not it's not as fun for me yeah. to, like, yeah. pile on anymore because that's, like, that that really sucks like it's 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 funny when it when a team is bad and like mismanaged for a while and you can laugh at them but i don't know they, they sort of they they crossed the threshold for me where the punchline just felt mean and and not <laughs> not like it, it's you know there, there's a point where you're just kicking someone while they're down and it's you know what are yeah. you what are you what are you proving at that point like i i would like them to become like competent again and then i can like feel feel good about taking shots at them um I can't that's I, I guess partially too that's that's being a Tampa fan we have a history of like horrific sports ownership and like terrible management of mm. teams and almost losing teams in all of the professional sports that we have in that city so maybe I'm a little more a little more tuned into that but yeah it's just it's 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 ugly up there man if, if they lose Carlson Stone and Duchesne next summer like what is that franchise like wh- oh yeah they're gonna <laughs> be like the Brady Kachuk show and it's like, well, they'll certainly be annoying, <laughs> but you know, like, like there's a very real scenario there where they are worse than like a classical expansion team. I don't mean Vegas, who were like a freak show expansion team that were somehow good. I mean like the Atlanta Thrashers in their first year of existence, where they put up like 40 points. The Sens could approach that if they lose uh, Carlson, Stone, Duchesne. Like the, their first line is going to be like Peugeot, Ryan, and Kachuk, and then nothing. So, as um, as a side note, one thing I've been thinking about this sort of recently. I um, I feel like watching a bad hockey team kind of warps your mind mm. because you start thinking that like you cannot do, you cannot possibly do better than like very mediocre players. And I remember distinctly this process when the Leafs were in kind of their dark days. Um, we had a, a line, I think, in the tank year of Nazem Kadri, Mike Santorelli, and Daniel Winnick. And Santorelli's not in the NHL anymore. Winnick, <laughs> if he is, I think he's in Minnesota or something, which is basically not the NHL either. Um, <laughs> and he's, like, on the fourth line or something. But I remember distinctly thinking, hey, this is a good second line. Like, this is a legitimately good second line. And then you, you watch, like, an actually good team. And it's like, oh, well, this is a terrible second line. This is not even a, a reasonable facsimile of a second line. And the reason I bring this up is because um, 
a few times I've seen like Ottawa fans comment on, on like Reddit or other forms of social media who's like you know what I think this team is actually decent they could fight for a playoff spot they list a roster and it's like I mean I'm a pretty hardcore fan of the NHL I feel like I can name probably like six or seven forwards at least on every single team in the league but it was legitimately three guys whose name I recognize Stone, Duchesne and um, Stone, Duchesne and Marion Gabrick they, they, they assume that they <laughs> traded Ryan. And then it's literally just, like, a bunch of no-names. Yeah. It's, like, a bunch of people who, like, you have vaguely heard of who are, like, decent at one point in their career or, like, are decent third-liners. Like, yeah, yeah, this, this could be a playoff team. And just, like, it can't. No, I'm sorry. It's, this is a terrible team. Your team sucks. I mean, yeah, that, that's, um... that's Stockholm Syndrome at that point. Like, <laughs> you, you, you have a choice, right? Which is, like, either just say that this is absolute nightmare as a sports fan and like either like temporarily check out on the team or just like find some redeeming quality there's some young players that you that you like and you want to watch and root for them um or or you you go that way which is like hey maybe maybe if everything goes exactly right and these players all play up to their absolute ceiling maybe we could make the playoffs and as like the eight seed like they're you know it's like that's yeah i don't i don't blame people as much for going that direction like it i, I don't know what you're so i don't know what you're supposed to do if you're a fan of the Sens this year like i guess just like watch the rest of the league and and study you know and watch prospects and get excited about the draft i it's it's rough man it's, it's a rough did, spot um, to be in as a fan did you just say get excited about the draft for Sens fans yeah, i know that's, and as i said it, i knew it wasn't thing. right <laughs> No, honestly, talking about I, just twisting the knife. Uh, you know, yeah. Corey Promen's been doing his like farm system rankings, right? And I actually have taken to just reading the tweets of his farm system rankings because the responses are funny every time. And uh, there was someone who said, "How the hell are you going to disrespect the Sens and put them 13th? Brown, uh. Kachuk, Formanton, Batherson, White, Schlappick, Gagne, Bernard, Docker, Wallenen, and other significant studs not good enough for you." And I was like, first of all, there was a point halfway through that list where he could 100% have just been putting random <laughs> syllables together. And secondly, he gets to the list of, he gets to like nine, ten names and goes, other significant studs? Not good enough for you? Like, what's, what is the first part of the list then if it's like more than significant studs? It's like, you have to be projecting that it's going to be an all-star team, right? Other significant but, studs sounds like a, a crappy new metal band. Oh yeah, definitely. Or like a very bad porno. <laughs> but um yeah but you know and then that's, you know, a, I that, think, that's okay. a credit in the that's a credit in the porno when you're watching this scroll others it's just a list of names <laughs> special thanks from the directors <laughs> to other significant studs but but you know and then i think okay but we were awful for a long time and i think my best evidence of the syndrome that arvin was talking about was phil kessel's defense like, yeah I love Phil Kessel. Honestly, I still think he's like he's a great player in some ways. But I was like sort of convinced. I was like Kessel isn't even really bad defensively. And like in my defense, by the standards of our team, he was probably no worse than average. But then you then you sort of look in general and then you're like, "Oh no, he just flies the zone and that's it." But um yeah, it, it is weird how how your mind gets warped. And I think we're still kind of recovering from that as Leafs fans. And, you know, I know Tampa 
is, you know, certainly way more successful recently, but I'm sure you guys remember some bad old days. Yeah. Well, basically a couple years in between the cop run and the recovery, I guess, would be the worst of it. Yeah, that the lockout destroyed the momentum we had, and then we had really terrible ownership. I mean, people forget that it's just, they were talking about moving this team, you know, like 2010, yeah. 2011 and stuff. Like, this is this none of this stuff. And I think Tampa is a really good example of, of how important ownership is. And I mean, Ottawa is obviously in the opposite direction, but it just, yeah, just having a well-run organization and the Leafs are probably the best run in the league at this point. I think they've, they've if Tampa maybe was that at one point, I think the Leafs have, have probably taken over that um, pretty pretty clearly this summer um yeah it's it's just it's such a it's such a difference maker when you have the sort of the right people driving driving the yeah. decision making and it doesn't take long for it to get ugly real fast if you have the wrong people oh, yeah well, i'll say frankly like i've envied the way tampa has done things for like several years now um you, you know I, I feel kind of better now as you said like you know things have been sort of going better for us but like Tampa feels like the model franchise at this point, um, you know, in like a, a non-traditional market, so to speak, but like just has done so many things well. But, y you know, I, it's true. It's easy to forget how quickly things can change in sports and how much it helps to have people at the top who are not like crazy. So, yeah. yeah. The degree of difficulty, I think, for Tampa is also harder than it is for, for the Leafs. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I mean, as as good as as Tampa is, and as strong as the fan base there is, which you know, I mean, I'm, based on their success, it, it seems clear that there is a very strong local backing there. Um, they they simply don't they can't operate under the same realities that the Leafs do, where the Leafs can literally just throw money at problems, and it's it's not an issue at all. The the Leafs in their tank year probably got more money from season tickets than most teams in the NHL. Yeah, right. Like, and they, they have that luxury many teams don't have the luxury of being able to be financially viable if their team is bad for an extended period of time. The right? flip side uh, of it, though, is that for, like, a long time, we basically neglected the draft or did it... But, like, we were prone to trading our first-round picks. We were prone to signing free agents. Like, the whole Cliff Fletcher and Pat Quinn era way back in our history, our whole idea was just sign the best free agents every year and we'll try and build a good team out of guys who are, like, 32, 35... Yeah, I mean, that um, worked well when there was no cap, right? So Yeah, that's the other thing. But, uh, yeah, and, and then, you know, and I think that uh, a similar thing happening to another Original Six franchise in Detroit is I don't think Ken Holland ever mentally adjusted to the existence of a salary cap. Like, I just don't think that he ever really realized how painful it was to pay your secondary players for six, eight years. Um, and now... You know, Detroit has begun what looks like a rebuild, but, like, they're still sitting on gross deals. Um, we remark on this every time we talk about Detroit, but their cap-friendly page is a war crime. It's gruesome. Like, the, like the, the Justin Ablocator contract is, like, how is it still so long? You know, like, it feels like it started in, like, 1998, and, like, it still has five years left or something yeah, like that. Yeah, people have been like, complaining about it being bad for, like, the entire time it's been signed, and you look at it, and it's, like, <laughs> it's like if it was signed today for the same length as it was now, it would still be a horrific deal. Yeah. It's the thing. It would still it's be like, a bad long-term deal. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. So, certainly, being able to kind of operate in reality goes a long way. I think... Do you get the impression that teams are finally getting smarter about signing these gigantic deals to guys that are going to stretch into the 30s? 
or please do not reference John Tavares in your answer or we will ban you from the podcast. But like, um, I mean, the, the Carlson like, deal this summer too sort of suggests not, especially if we're talking about, you know, those kind of loyalty contracts where, you know, guys deliver results and they get paid on the back end. Um, I, I think with Washington though, like they're so delirious from, from the cup win, understandably so that, I feel like everything went out the window for them in particular in a way that might be kind of unique to them in, in some respects. Like like with Carlson, it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's no defense for the Tom Wilson deal. I'll say that now. <laughs> there's, there's no defense <laughs> for that. Um, but the Carlson deal, you can at least like talk yourself into like, hey, you know, if we want to win another cup, we're going to need him because he's very important to us. You know, he's he's very good at this, yada, yada, yada. He's, he's clearly a, at least a good player, and you can kind of convince yourself that it's one where you you do it for years one two and three and you admit that it'll be bad in years the years afterwards when you're going to be a crappy team anyways right yeah and i think though to sort of broaden the discussion even beyond carlson i mean i think tampa did sort of the same thing with ryan mcdonough again this summer um yeah i just i don't know that i see teams being able to resist that i think maybe kevin shattenkirk was a good example of of last summer of, of New York sort of playing that really smart and sort of mm-hmm. bumping up the the average annual value and, and bumping down the, the length of the contract. Um, Paul yeah. Stastny's last two contracts are kind of in the same boat as well. Yeah, so I think maybe we're, we're getting there, but I, I still think it's, you know, it's... It, and the, the thing about it is, like, it's... Like, from a front office perspective, like, right, that's not a, that's not a smart thing to do, but also when you suppress player salaries through their primes with restricted free agency, you know, that's, you sort of make that inevitable. Um, yeah. And until it, you get to the end of the stick. Yeah. And until so you get to the end point where baseball is, where you just stop signing free agents altogether. Um, mm-hmm. And like, you only have players who are, who are under team control, which is, which is sort of the inevitable end of, of, you know, an analytically oriented approach to, to free agency and stuff. So I think we're, we're probably headed in that direction eventually. I don't know how long it takes us to get there, but yeah, that's, that's something that'll be interesting to see how it goes in the next, um, what I'm sure will likely be a lockout. Um, <laughs> when we, whether, you know, hockey looks at baseball and sort of the situation that they're in and starts to rethink restrictive free agency and starts to think about appropriately allocating funds to the players who are actually driving results when they're driving results instead of four years later. Um, because that's a, it's, it's going to become a problem at some point if, if, you know, if they don't think about it now. I have a question about kind of the the baseball thing that, that you brought up as kind of an, a, a logical mm-hmm. end to the efficient use of, of money with free agents. So I think one reason that NHL GMs get free agents is because um, they need to do quote unquote, something to improve their squads, right? And you can't, saying, Fulham and I say this a lot, but win a trade is not an actionable plan, right? You can't just say, okay, well, today I'm going to win a trade unless Jim Benning happens to be in the office that day. Um, so I mean and and anyone who you draft is many years away you can't really um, make that um, any sort of immediate impact that way so with so free agency is kind of what is left and for teams who want to improve they kind of are forced to go into that market is that not the case in baseball so like why are teams able to just completely avoid free agency as a means to improve their team or, or as a means to even just acquire players, like how do they, how do they acquire decent players otherwise? 
and how do they sell that to their fan base as like, hey, we're a team who is mediocre or worse. Like half the league has to be below average and in playoffs in baseball, it's magnified because the vast majority of teams don't make the playoffs. So if you're like a non-playoff team and you stay completely quiet in free agency, you can't exactly win a trade. And then baseball has an even more pronounced problem than hockey where, not problem, but more pronounced property where draft picks are many years away. How do they sell that to fans? So I, I think what they've... And how do they, they actually improve? Yeah, I think I think what they've started to sort of realize is that the value that they get from the player that they sign in free agency is is not maybe as as far beyond sort of the value that they would get from a player that they have in their system and baseball teams obviously have extensive systems of player development and they have so many players in their organization um that they can they can be more self-sufficient that way so i think that that's probably part of it um but but i think what it what it really did is it just sort of they, they, they started to realize that those those players who were sort of marginal, filling out the roster, um, you know, trying to pick up a half win, you know, a win here and there, that, that they could get those wins other ways without having to sort of spend in the absolute most expensive um, part of the market, which is, which is, you know, unrestricted free agency. So... I mean, I, 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 don't, I think there's there's some parallels there. I don't think it's a perfect it's a perfect parallel, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think inevitably when you impose salary restrictions on players in their in their prime and you sort of push that payment out to the future, I think ultimately it's 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 definitely worse for the players and and ultimately I think it's worse for the teams and that's one of the things from a labor perspective that I would love to see the league recognize, although, um, you know, I don't know that, I don't know that they will. I'm probably thinking that they would is, is optimistic. That's a cool point. It makes a lot of sense, actually. It'll be interesting to see how much that's borne out in the next few years. So we, we've kind of uh, got around to the top of the division and um, had a very interesting discussion on the future of NHL labor and why we're definitely having a lockout in a couple seasons. Perfectly timed for when Austin Matthews is in his prime, just because, you know, God really likes to stick it to us Leafs fans. Um, but we should we figured we'd end on a, on a high note, and for us, a high note is making fun of bad teams. <laughs> so, without further ado, the Montreal Canadiens. Oh, God, I love them. <laughs> They're so dumb. <laughs> the thing about them is that they have no offensive natural centers. Still, like, their best... Natural C is like Thomas Placanic still. Like, that's it. Did you hear? This has been kind of underreported, but did you hear that John Tavares didn't even grant them an interview? I did hear that. I, you know, I, I'm surprised people don't talk about it more, but yeah, they didn't even grant him an interview. And that, you know, that's got to be very painful for them because it, it has got to be very painful for them, especially as he signed with the Toronto Maple Leafs for seven years. Yeah. Without even giving them an interview. I mean, again, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more press about it, but. You know, watching mm. someone who would have solved their greatest need spurn them entirely to sign with their rival. Well, that's just got to be terrible. Um, it has, yeah. Anyway. But they, hey, at least they have Jonathan Drouin. Yeah, forever. Uh, Jonathan outscored by Zach Hyman at even strength last year. Drouin. That's his official name. Speaking of that, Alan, like, you know, we're just being complete dicks right now. But um, <laughs> what, like, what do you think of Drouin as a player? Because I know you had him a lot during his... Uh, 
You saw a lot of him during his Lightning tenure. Um, he's obviously talented. He tends to look more talented to me than maybe his results substantiate. What do you think of him? Um, Arvin gave him a good nickname there. I just wanted to maybe propose a, a second option, and that's you know Jonathan Druin outscored by Mikhail Sergachev at, at five on oh. five. Uh, Druin, <laughs> um, but he, uh, yeah, that that trade, that trade at the time, what I wrote about it was that both teams took a massive risk because both of those players have a ton of upside, and there's a chance that if one of those players hits their ceiling and one of them hits their floor, that that's historically looked back on as an awful trade. Um, and that first year was about as bad as it could possibly be from, from Montreal's perspective. In, in terms of, of what Druin is, um, man, it's he's played a lot of NHL games, and he looks like a dangerous player on the power play, doesn't really drive results at five on five um, can maybe score a little bit at five on five, but is, is primarily sort of a puck carrier. Um, I, I don't know, man. I, I, you know, a few years ago, you know, I was, I was pretty high on him and I was, I was hard on the organization for the way that they used him um, in the NHL and, and sort of his, his deployment and things. But, it's getting hard to sort of still be on the Jonathan Druin is a, is a, you know, meaningful piece of a, of a good team, you know, train like that's, it's, it's tough to come up with evidence for that. And there's a large sample um, to work with. So I, I don't know. I mean, he, he does some things very well, but it, it doesn't seem to translate to results for either him or, or his teammates when he's on the ice. And that's, you know, after this many games and this many minutes, um, you know, it's it's sort of it's sort of disconcerting if if you're Montreal and you you paid a hefty price to acquire him and immediately extended him um, to a long term deal. Yeah, that. Uh, I mean, even at the time, I do remember Arvin saying, "Like, look, this guy is not actually doing that much at even strength that we're able to measure." And I, I do wonder about Duran if they ever are able to put him with a really good center, um, if he could kind of shine in that way. But on the other hand, if the idea is, you know, just play him with a really good center and he'll look great, it's sort of like, well, that's true of a lot of guys. Including Zach Hyman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it gets to a point with him where he's one of those players where you start to say, like, Okay, like, like in terms of the people who still sort of defend him and, and think that he has, you know, a lot of upside still, it, it gets to a point where you're like, okay, well, how perfect does the situation have to be mm -hmm. to get results from him, right? And, like, you you look at a player like, you know, Yanni Gord who comes in, um, you know, or Jonathan Marcheseau, you know, who comes comes in the league, you know, undrafted free agent, you know, is is put in, in you know, those same sort of bottom six you know, minutes that Jonathan Jerome was getting. And those players put up results. Like, they drive play. They, they drive shots. They drive expected goals. They, they score a little bit in the minutes that they get. And, you know, at some point, you just have to look at Druin and say, like, he just is just is what he is. Like, this is this is the player he is. Um, and what what that has been, you know, at least especially at 5-on-5, five five has, has not been great so far. So, yeah, I mean, Alan, I think, put that um, really eloquently i think an alternative way of 
summing up Duran and Montreal is uh, it sucks to suck. <laughs> Anyways, um, that pretty much wraps up what we wanted to discuss here. We want to thank Alan for coming on the podcast. Uh, you can find all of his stuff at Raw Charge. It's a great site, probably the best Tampa Bay uh, Lightning site. Uh, and yeah, p- plug your Twitter. Do you have anything else that's, uh, that's going on right now uh, that you want to talk about, Alan? Um, not a ton. Yeah, like you said, Raw Charge. Um, I think that is the best place for, for Lightning coverage. Twitter is at Loser Points. Um, and then I, I presented a couple weeks ago at the RIT Sports Analytics Conference on uh, estimating shot assists and stuff. So you can find that um, on Hockey Drafts and, and on my Twitter as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Fulman, same for you. Do you have anything that's going on? Uh, I actually have nothing, which is embarrassing because I am sort of supposed to write stuff once in a while. But uh, I do just want to add uh, thanks a lot to Alan for coming on. Definitely great to have uh, a smart perspective from another fan base. It helps us get out of our bubble a little bit. Even if he is, and, uh, you know, completely out to lunch about how the Lightning did steal the Leafs jerseys because they, they 100% did. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just glad that I got the chance to come on and just sort of provide some perspective and some, some coverage from a team that, you know, doesn't get nearly enough, you know, in the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yes. I just, I'm glad that you guys started this podcast i think that there's there's not enough coverage of the leafs and we definitely need need more and it's it's great that there's more places for people to go and hear about the the toronto maple leafs who who definitely don't get enough coverage anywhere else for sure i mean i I think they're a very underserved market i I mean it's we fill a void In, in all honesty like when we were coming up with this podcast we were like well there's like the mainstream funny leafs podcast and then there's like the analytic nerdy leaves podcast and we're like but what if there's a niche in the middle <laughs> <laughs> like that was the whole premise for us to do this yeah very so. well thought out uh premise for a podcast <laughs> that, what if what if we're neither funny nor nerdy <laughs> i'm haunted by that as i fall asleep each night but i try not to think about it yeah all right um yeah so once again thanks to alan um you can find all mine and fuleman stuff at pencilplanpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rv and at at fuleman That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.